0: morning again. Um, hi, Judah. When there's nothing to say, just let your kids say, Dada. And then everyone loves that. Well, I have to say this morning, I'm, I'm kind of nervous, um, not for any other reason than this is one of the most difficult passages to teach in the Old Testament. We're in Daniel chapter 7, so turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. So far in Daniel chapter 1 through 6, um, it's been said by J. Vernon McGee, who is a guy that's been on the radio for years, and he continues to be, though he's passed away. He actually spent the last several years of his life teaching through the Bible in his office with a recorder. And he did that because he thought of all the things that I could do with the rest of my life, leaving a legacy of the the understanding and the teaching of God's word was something that was high on his list. And so he sat literally in an office like I have right here, and he taught to an empty room with a microphone recorder, and it is still playing on most Christian Bible teaching radio stations. But as I was reading his commentary this week, he said that Daniel chapter 1 through 6 basically is six chapters of the historic night with prophetic light, meaning that it's a historical evidence of things that were going on in their day and age where God was speaking through the prophet Daniel, revealing dreams and explaining and interpreting the things that were basically hidden because there was no understanding. And so Daniel, being an a godly man, in an ungodly nation, he was able to speak to the dreams that were being spoken and given to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Belshazzar had the writing on the wall. Most of you have known of that story. Daniel was called in and he said, what does this mean? Because it was three words without really, it was basically a sentence, but it didn't have any of the words in between, just three words. Uh, Wade counted, found wanting, you know, and so Daniel was able to come in and give what God was trying to tell Belshazzar the king at the time. And so in chapter 7 through 12, which we're getting ready to begin this section, is prophetic light in the historic night. And you'd say, well, that's the same thing. Uh, historic night with prophetic light, prophetic light in the historic night. So, But the perspective has changed, if you will. There's two cameras in this scene, But one camera is showing from the world's perspective. Chapter 1 is kind of Daniel from a a heavenly perspective. Chapter 2 through 6 is really the world and what was going on at the time, and God speaking into it through Daniel. And now we kind of change, and it becomes more of an apocalyptic view, which we always think of the movies that come on. But apocalypse means the revealing of Jesus. And if you look at the book of Revelation, that's really what it is. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ in all of his glory for everything that he is. Daniel's kind of the Old Testament version of that. And my pastor challenged me to teach this book, and I didn't realize how much it was going to challenge me. It's going to cause me to work out what I believe about the end times based on what scripture teaches me. But Prophetic light in the historic night means that it's going to start from the perspective of prophecy, but it's going to reveal history. Instead of looking at history and then prophecy speaking into it, it's going to show that God's over history and he's going to speak what's getting ready to happen after these things. And so in chapter one is written in Hebrew. We talked about this on the intro week for Daniel. Chapter two through seven is written in Aramaic which was the language in the Babylonian kingdom. And then chapter 8 through 12, Daniel then wrote it in Hebrew. So Daniel knew multiple languages. He wasn't just this farm boy prophet. He was a very educated man. Most of his education actually came from Babylon. He was a Jewish boy at the age of around 15 to 16, taken off to captivity when Israel had been disobedient, brought to this land called Babylon, this huge kingdom of great wealth and vast knowledge, and he was trained, essentially, to be a pagan uh, a person that uh, you ever heard of the classes? There was a class at Mac called uh, World Religions or Comparative Religions, and he basically got a a crash course in all the religions that Babylon practiced. And so as he is in this nation, he has much knowledge, but what is most useful from Daniel is actually his knowledge of God. They had all this knowledge of all these other gods, but what they didn't know was the God who created them. And so in chapter 7, we have this vision called the four beasts. So the rest of Daniel, I want to point this out, is not in chronological order, which completely messes with me. Because I like reading things in order. I'm an engineer, so I like, you know, I like chronology. It's the best way for me to understand. I always see it on a timeline in my brain. But uh, Daniel kind of jumps out of that. For the first six chapters, we've had chronological order. And now for chapter 7 through chapter 12, we're not going to have that. Which I have to say, every year I've read this through, and it's been 10 years now. I've read it every year all the way through, and I'm completely Confused. So if you're reading your Old Testament, and you're like, I don't know what this means, and you, you, you're you like, it's driving you nuts, and you feel like you're not getting anything out of it, God's going to use it. But at the same time, if you ever get the chance, get out of commentary. Get, get some study tools and, and dig in a little bit, because you'll find out it's not actually that confusing. It's just that you don't know what order it's been written in. So in chapter 7, we have this dream, this vision that Daniel is given. Chapter 7... Um, Actually correlates with chapter two, and if you remember with me, chapter two was the uh, the image, this dream about an image that Nebuchadnezzar had, and basically the image started, and it was made of a head of gold, and then its shoulder, or its its arms and its and its chest were made out of silver, and then its the next part was its belly and thighs were made out of bronze, and then its legs were made out of iron, feet made out of clay and iron we talked about how that basically correlates to the kingdoms that were to come. The kingdom of gold was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. No greater king has ever existed. He had sovereign authority. Nobody, he didn't answer to anybody. He he had the final word on what would go on. And then we see Medo-Persia that came after that, took over when when God said, you know, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. This Persian kingdom came in, and we know this from history, that they came in at night when there was a drunken party going on with Belshazzar, and they actually went in and they took it over, even though it had this wall that was 300 feet tall, and it was wide enough on top that four chariots, four to six chariots, many believe, could race across the top. That's how wide it was. And so this kingdom that was built with a fortress, and it had all this financial wealth, In its greatest and most crazy hour of need, they were drunk and they weren't paying attention. And the Persian kingdom came in and took it over. They they said, hey, you're under new management now. You are no longer under this. And so this is the kingdom of silver, the arms and the chest of the kingdom of Persia, which eventually would become Medo-Persia. And so it goes on and on and on through the Greek kingdom, To the Roman kingdom and Greek kingdom was Alexander the Great. I'm kind of rushing ahead here, but that kingdom was actually taken over. He took all over all the kingdoms of the world, Alexander the Great did, in 12 years. 12 years. All the kingdoms of the world were taken under his rule. And then he died in his mid-30s because he had accomplished everything he always hoped to. He got destination sickness and he was drunk one night and he died. And so, as a result of that, we, we see that these four kings take over. But I'm, like I said, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, in chapter 7 and chapter 2 correlate with one another. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four materials and the metal image will tie together with chapter seven's Daniel's vision of these four beasts, these kingdoms. So, verse 1, chapter 7, says this, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Sounds like a nursery rhyme. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, if you know his location, the great sea at that time was the Mediterranean Sea. And so now we call it the Mediterranean Sea, but they used to call it the Great Sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, it was devouring breaking in pieces, devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another little horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words." What in the world, you know? This is quite a dream, right? I, uh, what was the, the book, and it's, it was like on the bestseller list for kids, and they had this little boy that basically disobeyed his parents, had to go to his room, went to bed, and he had this bad dream. What was that called? Uh, where the Wild Things Are. And they made a movie recently, right? So I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I see that book, and that's kind of what I envision with these beasts. These, these wild things that don't look like anything I've ever seen before. And it's like we've gotten onto a boat and we've gone to this place. I, I wonder if there's a little bit of, you know, influence from, that, from, from this vision for that book. I don't know. But the, the idea is he has this dream. And have you ever had a dream and you're like, what in the world is that about? Uh, most of the time I have bad dreams. It was because of a bad burrito. You know, the night before, I was like, I should not have eaten that at 10.30 at night, but I was hungry. So then you have these weird dreams. Well, Daniel saw this vision, and he wrote it down. Daniel didn't think that he had a bad burrito. He thought, God's trying to tell me something. So it says there in verse um, 1 that in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. So this gives a time and a place in history where he received this dream. This wasn't something that came along later. Um, The historic time is, is, is important, and I think it lends credence to the writing because Daniel is one of these books that it's so accurate historically, and it was supposed to have been written so early that many believe that are skeptics of the Bible and don't believe that Jesus is God and that believe the Bible's corrupt and it was written by men and, and so that it, you can't trust it. Many believe that the book of Daniel had to have been written after all these kingdoms took place because it's so accurate, you know? And I heard a story. Uh, it was about a man who, about the time that they invented the microscope, he had to have one and so he bought one. It was really expensive, but he bought it because he was like, he was very scientific. He wanted to see the structural level of things. So he put things under the microscope and he was so happy. He bought this thing. Until one night, he said, you know what? I wanna see what's in my food. So he took out his dinner, put a little bit on the microscope. He looked at it and found out there was all kinds of creepy crawly things on it. There was bacteria, there was all kinds of contaminants. And you know what he did? he threw the microscope away. Why? Because the microscope revealed something he didn't want to know about. And skeptics want to throw the Bible away. Rather than change their lives and trust God, they'll throw away the microscope. The Bible is the microscope for the human heart. And so anytime we want to discredit it, we just look for reasons to discredit it versus saying, hey, I wonder if this is actually true. And what the man could have learned is that Hey, during food preparation, we should wash our hands. And hey, some of this bacteria is good. You know, probiotics. So all of these things are said, and I like that story because it reveals uh, humans' hearts. We all would rather just ignore things. How many of you ladies would stress less if you didn't have any mirrors in your house? Right? But the reality is we have it there so we can do something about all this. You know, I got up this morning, I have to tell a story on myself. I got up this morning and I looked in the mirror. I looked like Cindy Lou Who. And that sounds weird, but I literally, my, my hair is so thin and it was going up in the front and it literally went like this. I'm not even kidding. And I went out to the living room and I go, I go, Kelly, you didn't tell me I looked like Cindy Lou Who. She didn't even crack a smile. She loves me. Of course, she was like, well, you do that to me every morning when you leave, you know, you're always, you know, anyway. So, that's the reality. We, we don't kick out the mirror, do something about it, right? The Bible is known to the, us as that. It's just a mirror that we look into to see ourselves for who we really are, and we have two choices. We can throw it out, or we can do something about it. And so, here we have Daniel giving this this date and this time, and it was argued for many years that Belshazzar, whom you just referenced, actually wasn't ever a king. They had no record of it. But historians and archaeologists kept digging. And what they found was in 1854, pretty recent, right? 1854, they found a clay cylinder with a prayer from Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, to the moon god for his oldest son, Belshazzar. He was praying for his son. And the the prayer is inscribed on this clay tile pot that they would keep. And so in 1882, they actually translated a Nabonidus chronicle that was kept on a clay tile that stated Nabonidus was pretty much an absentee king. Nabonidus was the son of um, Nebuchadnezzar. So the question was well, then why in the world is Belshazzar the king instead of Nabonidus? Because. Belshazzar is the king of or the son of Nabonidus. So all that to say, they found in 1882 a Nabonidus chronicle that stated Nabonidus was pretty much an absentee king. He lived about 450 miles away from Babylon and he left Belshazzar as his crown prince, the one that he left in charge while he was gone, basically showing us that in fact the Bible was right before they found any other historical evidence. But if it can't be backed by archeological evidence, we could probably throw it out, right? But many times what we find out is that archeology span actually just proves what the Bible already said. In the Psalms, the psalmist wrote inspired by God that the, the world was round in days where people were saying it was flat. And so many times skeptics try to throw out the Bible and what they're doing is they're throwing out the one piece that they can actually trust because they don't want to trust it. So this places Daniel's vision around 550 BC, and actually what they found is as they've studied the grammar and the Aramaic that was used, it was actually used in this document. Uh, It agrees with the date of the writing. You know how language kind of changes over time? Even now, I think years from now, people are going to go, LOL came up back then, and we don't even use that anymore. They're going to have some emoticon that they've got inscribed on a, you know, on a tablet somewhere. Um, But the idea is that those that are skeptics about it say that, well, it uses Aramaic, and so it's got to be much later. But what they found out is that it's the oldest Aramaic that was used in the book of Daniel. So just some interesting information. So in verse 2, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. It's important for interpretation to go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, because we got to figure out what this sea is talking about. Is it just talking about a body of water, or is it leading into this discussion of kingdoms? Well, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, we have another comment on what seas are, Because in the book of Revelation, it says, he said to me, meaning the one that was giving John the vision, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, and of course, in this uh, prophecy, he's talking about uh, Babylon that's going to be restored back. These are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So these peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, these people from every corner of the earth are being stirred up and they are in fact the great sea. The great sea is a group of people. It's nations, tribes, and peoples. So verse 3 says, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other, which makes sense because when we have kingdoms and leaders, they have to be brought out of the people that exist. And so he's saying, these beasts, these kingdoms rose from among the sea of nations, tribes, and people. And then he gets specific and talks about the first one. The first one was a lion that had eagle's wings, and I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. A man's heart was given to it. So remember I said that this correlates to chapter 2 with this vision of this statue. So this kingdom, this lion, is a, a lion with eagle's wings. A lion is the kingdom of the jungle, or the king of the jungle. And the eagle is the king of the air. It's kind of this very uh, prominent bird of prey. And nobody tells an eagle what to do. They're huge. But they have these big, long claws. Well, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, at one point, God warned him, if you continue to ascribe all this glory of your kingdom to yourself, I'm going to take away your sanity. And so he did. And at the time that he did that, I believe it was for seven years, said his hair grew long like eagle's feathers, and his nails grew long like eagle's claws. Interesting. At the same time, archaeologically, if you go back to the place where the kingdom of Babylon was, they've dug up these sites and they found at the city gates these statues that look like lions with eagle's wings. So, uh, interesting. So, we have this king and this kingdom spoken of by a lion that had eagle's wings, but look, its wings were plucked. It was lifted from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, I believe this speaks to the wings being plucked and the, the, he walking on two feet and given a man's heart is symbolic of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled in uh, chapter 4. And then after his humiliation, where he was basically made to be a man walking on all fours, eating grass like an animal, he kept his kingdom and it says there in the end of the chapter that when he got to the lowest of lows, he looked up to heaven and God restored to him his ability to reason. And at that point, I believe he was converted to follow God. It says there that his, his reason was restored to him and everything he said, he praised God. And so this is the kingdom of Babylon. And we know historically that it was taken suddenly by verse 5, another beast, a second like a bear, raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Excuse me. So this next kingdom suddenly comes in and it overtakes the kingdom of Babylon. And we've already read about that during the time of Belshazzar. In comes the Persians and they take over. They destroy. They say, hey, we're we're in charge now. And when they do this, verse 5 says, This kingdom is like a bear, but it was raised up on one side. So if you can imagine this bear, you know, bears will get up on their feet. And if it's raised up on one side, that means one side is stronger than the other. And so if that's the case, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. These ribs are three kingdoms that it actually assimilated into itself. We know these kingdoms to be Egypt, Lydia, and Babylon. And these were all successfully acquired by this Medo-Persian kingdom by force, brute force. But one of the things you need to know about the Persian Medo Medo-Persian kingdom is they weren't quick and and they didn't run to the battle like the Babylon kingdom. They were more like a lumbering bear. Have you ever seen a bear go through the woods? It kind of you know, it's, it's powerful, but it doesn't move quickly. It lumbers through the woods. And so it's slow-moving and lumbering like a bear. And many times when they would go off to battle, Persians, they would take their families with them. So you can imagine if you ever travel with your family, traveling just as a couple is one thing or as an individual. You get the kids along. It slows things down quite a bit. And so that's what they were known for. But then verse 6 says, After this I looked... There was another like a leopard, leopards are known for being very fast, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. I believe that this speaks to uh, this Grecian empire that came and actually conquered the Medo-Persians. A Greek was ran by Alexander the Great. It was taken in, like I said earlier, 12 years and as a result of that, um, it, he died in, thir, in his 30s, and when it was divided, it was divided into four parts, speaking to the four heads that ran the kingdom. And so it doesn't speak very much about this one, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But it says, after this, verse 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Now, it seems like his tone changes here. Because all of a sudden there's this sense of awe, like I don't know how to describe this one. He says, Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth, it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling whatever was left, the residue, with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, that was rising up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so there's this kingdom that raises up, and it's a kingdom of absolute destruction like no one's ever seen before. And whatever's left is residue and it stomps on it with his feet and then it has these horns now in the bible when you see the word horn whether it's in the psalms or anywhere else it's a picture of strength horns are meant to tell us about strength but there's ten horns and ten horns are known as ten kingdoms that will come back together and become this revived version of the roman kingdom Notice it says it's this great beast. And I believe this beast is like that of the Roman Empire. But what you need to know about the Roman Empire that took over after the Greeks is the Roman Empire never really was taken over by another kingdom. Do you ever notice that? It actually just kind of dissolved. It just dropped off the scene. Uh, It didn't really make sense. Now, I believe that most of what destroyed it was the immorality, was the uh, just absolute lucrid way that they lived, they couldn't stand. Uh, Imagine this, the Caesars, every Caesar, uh, they couldn't trust anybody, and they couldn't be trusted. They were just looking for power. And so in the midst of this kingdom, it it just kind of deteriorates, falls off the scene. But what I believe is going to happen is that in the end times, and I believe that we're living in them, There's going to be 10 nations that will be from that kingdom that will rise back up and become one. And when they become one, there will be this sense of solidarity. There will be a league of nations that, that makes them all up. And notice this in verse... I lost my place it had 10 horns meaning 10 kingdoms brought together to make one verse 8 says i was considering the horns and there was another horn that kind of a little one coming up from among them before whom he as he was raised up this other kingdom that seemingly comes out of nowhere he tears out 3 of the horns 3 of the 10 will be destroyed by him and as a result of that he will gain power And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. He will be a very prideful, pompous man, and he will be full of wisdom, I believe is what it speaks of, eyes of man. He'll have vision for the future. And we all look for a leader that has vision beyond today, right? Now, I, I can't speak to who these nations are because I don't know. It doesn't describe those nations. It just says that this is what's going to happen. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, I think that you can see in this that this is going to be a setup for the Antichrist. Now, if you've ever seen any of the Christian movies talking about the Antichrist, it always has this person that's demonic, has an obvious uh, satanic star on his head, and there's all these things but I would submit to you that the Antichrist is not going to be somebody that is obviously against Christ. Antichrist has the idea not just of against God, but instead of God. Does that make sense? He will be a man that will basically raise him up to be a world ruler instead of Jesus, who's going to set up his kingdom. And so he will set up And he will be um, in power. Verse 9 I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So we see all these kingdoms that are of these wild and furious beasts that we've never seen before, even the ones we know about. They've got wings, which makes no sense. And then there's thrones set up, and the Ancient of Days is seated. The Ancient of Days, I would submit to you, is in the Old Testament a way to talk about God himself. Ancient of Days, that phrase, means days without beginning. Jesus and God the Father. He was, before creation existed, God existed. God is not created. He was, and so the ancient of days. He's older than days, and they brought. And um, it says there, his garment was white as snow, speaking of his purity. The hair of his head was like pure wool, speaking of wisdom. Those of you that have gray on your head, that's a symbol of wisdom. Don't deny it. Just just own it. You know. I look for people with gray hair on their head to go, you know, they've lived a little bit longer than me. Now, wisdom doesn't always come with age, but it's, it's symbolic of that, right? You assume, assume somebody's kind of had a few trips around the sun, and they're starting to get things, and they've learned from experience, and uh, so I'm hoping to have hair when mine turns gray. Uh, you know, I, that's just me. I, you know, I got this little patch back here. They always cut too short. I'm <clears throat> just trying to lighten it up a little bit. I know this is heavy, you know. This is heavy, and I, I can't say that I've sat through somebody teaching this before, so thank you for your kindness towards me. So there was a fiery stream issued, and it came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. A thousand thousands is quite a bit, by the way, if it's like an exponential number, but it speaks to uh, what Jesus was saying. You remember when, uh, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was betrayed by Judas with a kiss? And then Peter gets all up in arms because that's Peter. He's just like, do and then think. And he stands up and he, he cuts the ear off of Malchus, the, the, the servant of the high priest who was binding up Jesus and taking him away to be rested. And Jesus said, Hey, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, Peter. Put down your sword. And then he heals the guy's ear and he said, do you not know that if I I wanted to, I could call legions of angels to minister to me and to protect me? I don't need you, Peter. You're here, but I've I've got forces at my command that I could call down if I was going to. But it's my time. It's time for me to go and to be killed on the cross for the sins of mankind. Don't save me from that. Because to save me from that is to unsave every other person that could be redeemed by my work on the cross. I am the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. So Jesus, God himself here, the hair of his head was pure as wool. His throne was a fiery flame. God is a consuming fire. He is a judge. He sits on his throne and he makes judgments and he judges between the wheat and the chaff. He judges between the unfruitful vine and and the works of precious stone. And all of our works will be tested by this fiery stream issued from his throne. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And so these books of the works of man will be judged by God. But notice that all these humankind kingdoms are leading up to the ultimate kingdom. I think every disappointment in life, everything that lets us down and takes away our hope, is supposed to lead up to the thing that's supposed to be our hope. Does that make sense? Everything that's happened in all of these kingdoms is ferocious and mean and biting and tearing and destroying, and it leads up to this kingdom that was always meant to be God's kingdom and its kingdom ruled by purity and wisdom and justice and perfect judgment. The court was seated and the books were open. He says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away from them, Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That phrase that's used in the New Testament to speak of Jesus. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion, meaning that he had the right to rule and reign. And to him was given glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Interesting, because in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus, spoken of him, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet at this coming, he will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, all the things that he denied himself of, though he deserved them at his first coming, and that all people's nations and languages should serve him. He will be served. He came to serve, and then he will be served. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed, in contrast to the ones that we've seen that will be destroyed." And so here we have Daniel's vision. So we have four kingdoms, temporary, earthly, and lost. And then we have one final kingdom that they culminate in that's eternal. And Jesus is the ruler. He's the king. It will not be destroyed. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, he says, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Interesting, because those who follow the Lord, though we may be persecuted... Though we may be marginalized, though we may be, even in some countries today, they are being killed for their faith. The beauty is, is that though these kingdoms reign now, it says there that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So we will receive the kingdom. Interesting because Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 5, cannot remember exactly what verse. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom. So when you read that, you're going, well, that's not how kingdoms are obtained now. Exactly. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. So even as believers, we are given power to follow God. We are given power to do what he's given us to do, but we have to do it under the control of the Holy Spirit. And if we will be meek in this life, though the world may never sing our praises, we may never have a hall of fame in our house going, look at all my exploits. What God sees is that we've been faithful with a few things, and he will make us faithful over many things. We actually will be joint heirs with the kingdom. We will actually get to sit on thrones and make judgment in the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? because if you believe that, I believe that your life will prove that you're not living for these kingdoms. They will perish. Uh, Even our earthly kingdom here, even these presidential candidates, whether you're for them or against them, I don't care. I do care because I, I, I care about the policies they come up with. I care about how they represent us as a country in the world. But ultimately, if you disagree with them or if you agree with them, Uh, Don't live for them because they will end, and then the kingdom of Jesus will be brought in. So, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. See, he was greatly afraid of this beast, so he wants to know more about it. Which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell. Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Verse 21, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints. And, look at this, prevailing against them, until. So, this is a picture in the Old Testament of the Great Tribulation. The seven years where all hell will break loose. Now, I believe, based on my study of Scripture, that the the church will not be around for that time. We will be raptured, taken up violently by the Lord to be in heaven. But there will be those that are still here, and there will be those that trust God, but they don't know Jesus, and they will remain. There will be those who are totally against God, completely, completely, But during the tribulation period, there will be this time of testing, this great tribulation, unlike anything we've ever seen. It won't be like today where we're hearing about more hurricanes. It won't be like today where people are being slayed. People of God will be slayed and killed. People in general will be killed in an unprecedented amount and destroyed. But he says here, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints. So, who are the saints? If the church is not here, who is he talking about? I believe that this is speaking to the people that will come to faith during the tribulation period, and I believe many will. But during the tribulation period, for you to have faith in God, it won't be one. Of the, you will die for it, because everything in the world will be against it. They will kill you. But until the Ancient of Days, he says, he was making war against the saints and prevailing. Until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints and of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces." a kingdom of destruction. The 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He'll be a man of blasphemy. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. For three and a half years. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So imagine this just in the last chapter, I think. um, Yeah, the last chapter, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And I believe that as he was in there, he trusted the Lord and he had probably one of the best nights of sleep he's ever had. Uh, He trusted God. He wasn't able to be harmed by all the other leaders around him, and he slept well. The king, however, that doomed him to be in there on accident because he'd been flattered, he didn't sleep well at all. But now Daniel's been given this vision of these beasts and these kingdoms and the things that are going to come, and he can't sleep. He's broken. So I would submit to you that this vision is put in Scripture not to scare us, It's not about scaring us into salvation. It's not about scaring us to follow God, but it should humble us. And it should cause us to think soberly about what it is that we serve. Who? What kingdom? Because it looks like here that there's going to be many kingdoms that will rise up and fall. And even the ultimate kingdom that's supposed to bring unity and peace to the whole world is going to be led by this king, that is doing it deceptively so he can gain power and ultimately he's going to destroy those of faith over the whole earth. But as a result of that, it's going to make way for everyone on earth to receive this new kingdom that's going to be led by righteousness and justice and goodness. And it's going to be one king who's going to give dominion to all of those who have obeyed him when it was not easy. So in the meantime, we're here, we have this opportunity to follow the Lord that knows the beginning from the end. He knows how the story's going to end. I don't know about you, but I I many times have found myself trusting in people that don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And yet we have this God who has not only understanding what's going to happen in the long run, He knows how the story's going to end, but He's already provided so that we can be a part of the victorious end versus the destroyed end and I think that's cool. But that said, I hope you were able to uh, receive something from this this morning. There's so much more to it that I did not hit on, but I find comfort, and I find peace in the God of Daniel, because Daniel was just a man being faithful in the world that he lived in, in the circumstances he lived in, and God's desire was to reveal to him the things that would come to pass, to remind him to continue to be faithful. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision. I thank you for this vision, even though I don't understand all of it. I thank you that other places in Scripture correlate with this so that it gives us better understanding. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Thank you for your word, which was given to us to comfort us. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about comfort, not so much as just making us comfortable but in the way of giving us understanding, convicting us when maybe our lives are not those that we're proud of or those that we know that you're happy with. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to follow you with all of our ways. We want to be sober and vigilant, knowing that uh, even our little kingdoms, I've got my own little kingdom that's going to end, but at the end of all things, we know that your kingdom will last forever. And so, Father, we want to be a part of that kingdom. So I ask, Father, that you would guard our hearts and our minds. Help us to see if we are following after other gods. If we're sacrificing uh, to things that cannot save us. Lord, make us those who are holy, as we sang earlier. And not self-righteous, but holy because we've trusted in a holy God who is perfect. Who lived in righteousness. Who showed what it meant to be a child of the kingdom. Someone submitted to do only the will of the Father. So, Father, make us those who are faithful. Not for our own glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen.